If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies. Your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Like the Battle of Hastings or the Great Fire of London, the gunpowder plot is one of the great landmarks of British history, kept alive in the public imagination by annual firework displays and bonfires. But what's the real history behind this remarkable episode? What drove a group of conspirators to attempt to blow up Parliament? Who masterminded the plot? And how was the conspiracy foiled? Spencer Mizzen sat down with Dr John Cooper, reader in early modern history at the University of York, to answer your questions on the gunpowder plot. John, thank you for joining us today. It's great to be with you, Spencer. Thank you for inviting me. Now, John, thanks to bonfire night and the tradition of lighting fires, burning effigies, setting off fireworks and giving children a penny for the guy, pretty much everyone in Britain, at least, has heard of the gunpowder plot. But some of our listeners won't know a huge amount about it beyond that. And so that takes me on to our first question. Well, actually, it's, it's kind of a double question, and it was submitted by NCOS72 on Instagram. And NCOS asks, what was the gunpowder plot and why did it take place? Well, I suppose the first thing to say about that question is it's a very good question, because although there are some things we know well about the gunpowder plot, there are other areas of the plot that are actually still quite mysterious. But at core, what we know is this was a fantastically audacious 
conspiracy by a group of English gentlemen, quite a a tight-knit group of gentlemen who were related to each other, to assassinate the king, who of course was James VI of Scots, the first of England, and the government, and everybody else, in fact, who was attending the state opening of Parliament in 1605. And the core plan, incredible as this sounds, was to detonate 36 barrels of gunpowder, which had been concealed in cellars underneath uh, the House of Lords. So that's the core of the gunpowder plot. And the immediate question arises, why did it happen? What's the motivation of the rebels? And they're motivated uh, by a number of grievances and concerns. But the fundamental thing that links them is that they're all Catholics. And so this is, at some level, a protest against the oppression that Catholics have been living under in England since Henry VIII's Reformation. And that oppression has been growing worse in recent years. But this is a lot more, it's a lot different from the sort of plots and conspiracies that you see over the previous couple of generations in Elizabeth I's reign. For instance, this isn't a protest. This is an attempt essentially to behead government, almost literally, and to stage a coup d'etat. Or you might even call it a kind of attempt at revolution. Now, what was going to happen once the king had been assassinated and the government had been destroyed and the Palace of Westminster had been blown to smithereens is a very interesting set of questions. And we're much less clear about that, actually. That story is much more murky. But fundamentally, that's what the gunpowder plot is. It is actually an attempt to blow up the Houses of Parliament with the king and the government in situ. My next question is is one that's popular among internet search queries, and that is how alive were the authorities to the prospect of a, you know, a spectacular Catholic attempt on the king's life? I mean, did they in any way suspect that something like this was coming? I think that security around the monarchy was always an issue. So if we look back to the previous reign, so the reign before James's, if we look back to Elizabeth's reign, there had been a whole series of plots and conspiracies around the Queen, the most radical of which had possibly attempted uh, to assassinate the Queen, made an attempt on the Queen's life. So the notion that the monarchy might be in danger, and particularly might be in danger from uh, disgruntled Catholic plotters, was a very familiar one. And it's something that essentially from the 1570s onwards, a new kind of uh, secret service had come uh, into being to, to try and um, try and deal with that threat. So I think that the government is, is very aware of those threats. But actually, in 1604, 1605, which is uh, when the plot generates and then, of course, explodes into action, I think the government's eye is off the ball, actually. I think the government is taken by surprise here, because in a sense, Elizabeth is dead. James VI and I is bringing a new kind of tone to English government. Some people don't like him because he's Scottish, but other people do like him because he's talking a language of religious reconciliation, even though he's a strong Protestant himself. At least on the surface, James seems to be interested in creating a kind of religious accommodation between Protestants and Catholics in England. And actually, internationally, tension between England and its great Catholic enemy of Spain is reducing. So... One of the very interesting things about the timing of the gunpowder plot, which I think is relevant, is that a peace treaty has just been signed 
between, as it were, Protestant England and Catholic Spain. So actually, political and religious tension is, is to some extent, dying down in the months leading up to the gunpowder plot. Paradoxically, I think that's one of the reasons why the plotters act. I think, it, in a sense, it's, it's almost a last chance for them um, to, to lead this kind of uh, coup d'etat or, or, or Catholic revolution before some of those sectarian divisions actually um, start to die down. At least that's one way of reading it. So was there thinking if they left it another couple of years that relations between Catholics and Protestants would almost be too good for them to act? I think it's possible that that's the case, yes. But I think that Catholics in England uh, since the 1560s or 1570s, they've been looking to Spain as their protector. Now, this is, um, this is a very controversial point. And of course, what I don't want to do is to to reinforce any sort of residual sense that uh, that English Catholics were disloyal or English Catholics were sort of wanting to bring in a, a Spanish invasion to liberate England from Protestant tyranny. But there is a small element of that, I think, and particularly in terms of the Spanish Armada, we know that a, a small handful of radical Catholics were welcoming the Armada in, in 1588. But those tensions, as I say, had really, uh, really sort of begun to die down. And I think that what the what the gunpowder plotters have realised by 1604 is that Spain is no longer going to be their protector. There isn't going to be another Spanish armada. There isn't going to be another Spanish Catholic intervention in English affairs because the armada of 1588 was defeated, of course. Subsequent armadas have never really amounted to very much. And Spain under Philip III, to be honest, is just getting less and less interested in trying to lead a Catholic crusade against England. So those traditional methods that um, that English Catholics might have employed to get some foreign assistance, to get some military aid, all of that's falling apart for them. And they're very angry about that, actually. I think there's, as well as the sort of anti-Protestant and anti-James VI and first element of the gunpowder plot, there's also a, a kind of a xenophobic element on it. And uh, one of my colleagues at the University of Cambridge, Mark Nichols, has written about this. And he he really, in his writings on gunpowder plots, he really points out that it's a very English plot, actually. It's, um, it's really, um, okay, guys, we're on our own now, and this is our last chance to try and drum up some support and, and take, out, take down the government before possibly those, those religious tensions resolve themselves and Catholicism simply begins to die away. That's what they're most fearful of, that gradually Catholics, after so many years of oppression, gradually they'll drift into conformity with the Church of England um, and Catholicism will just die out. So yes, it's, it's almost a last chance saloon for them, I think. Now, uh, for my next question, I'm going to turn to one that was submitted by Isla Hurry on Instagram. And she asks, if the conspirators had succeeded, what did they plan to do next? Well, it's a very good question from Isla. And in fact, I think we know a lot more about how the conspirators attempted to blow up Parliament than what their plan was next. But what seems to have been the idea is that King James and Henry, Prince of Wales, would have been blown up in the Palace of Westminster explosion. And that left uh, one key member of the royal family who wouldn't have been at court, who wouldn't have been at the Palace of Westminster uh, on the 5th of November, 1605. And that was the young Princess Elizabeth. Now, she was only nine years old and she was nowhere near London, actually. She was 
uh, being cared for by the Harrington family outside Coventry. Um, and these English conspirators who form the core of the gunpowder plot, their lands and estates are very much based in the Midlands of England. And so what, as far as we can determine, what the plot seems to have been is that if the king had been assassinated, if the palace of Westminster had been destroyed, the government had been killed off and London would have been in turmoil, these Catholic gentry families in the Midlands would have uh, ridden to try and secure the person of Princess Elizabeth and basically put a kind of a Catholic cordon around her and then try and form some kind of a substitute Catholic government with extreme urgency. Now, that seems, of all the audacious aspects of the gunpowder plot, that actually, to me, seems the most extraordinary. How they would actually have planned to create a government, you know, from, from having, you know, essentially kidnapped the young Princess Elizabeth with, with London and all of the institutions of government in, in London in total disarray, this does not look to me like being a very well thought through plan. And I think that, I think the plotters recognise this. And to some extent, the gunpowder plot is an act of rage, I think. And, and it's, it's, it's an act of destruction more than a very well thought through plan of construction of an alternative government. But that at least is their, that's their plan on paper. And actually something very interesting happens when, when the gunpowder plot is discovered and when Guy Fawkes famously is discovered underneath the palace of Westminster down there in the cellars. There is some attempt actually to, to launch that second part of the plot. So those English gentry do ride out and they are trying to secure the person of the Princess Elizabeth. And they're trying to persuade, incredibly, they're trying to persuade fellow gentlemen um, in the Midlands that actually this plot has succeeded and the king has been assassinated. So they, they tell a huge series of lies, in a sense, to try and get some momentum behind this kind of follow-up coup d'etat in the Midlands. But it, it simply fails to happen and nobody believes them. Um, and so ultimately they, they, they make this very sort of sad uh, last stand. So hopefully that's, that's explained sort of some of what we don't know as well as what we do know and some of the, some of the chaos and confusion, really, that ensues uh, once that plot fails to ignite, quite literally. No, that's a really great uh, explanation. And, you know, that, so talking about the plot, that leads us on to our next question, which was submitted by Stephen Hood 8. He asks, who was the mastermind behind the plot? Now, you know, everybody knows the name of Guy Fawkes. He's obviously by far the best known of the conspirators. But does that mean he was the ringleader? Well, one of the interesting things about the gunpowder plot is that Guy Fawkes was, was not the ringleader. He's the man brought in to, to light the fuse, in a sense. Guy Fawkes is the only professional soldier amongst the plotters. And he seems to have been a man of really extraordinary bravery, extraordinary sang-froid. I mean, it really, it really takes some guts, I think, to sit there on 36 barrels of gunpowder underneath the Palace of Westminster with a slow-burning fuse and a hooded lantern, just waiting until the moment when you light that fuse, and then presumably run like hell. I mean, when Guy Fawkes was discovered, he was, he was dressed in his spurs. So I don't think that Guy Fawkes intended to be a martyr. He intended to be away on his horse before the Palace of Westminster blew up. But if, if Guy Fawkes isn't the leader, then who is? I think we know that. Essentially, it's this gentleman, um, Robert Catesby, 
who's in his 30s. Um, he's, a, he's a kind of a minor Catholic gentleman who uh, lives in Northamptonshire. Um, he's a good example of one of those Catholic gentry whose social position has fallen, I think, uh, over the previous years, because it's increasingly impossible for gentlemen like Robert Catesby to fulfil their traditional role within local society. They're not being invited to court. They're not being invited to be magistrates anymore because they're Catholic. So they've seen their families decline. They've been fined out of existence. They've seen their estates taken away or reduced to pay those fines. And so Catesby is a very good example of that, uh, that sort of genre of Catholic gentry um, who 50 or 70 years previously would have been a major force within English provincial society and are, are, are just dwindling away, really. And Catesby, he's educated. I think he's a very likable character. He's got charisma. He's related to a number of the other gunpowder plotters. So the other chief plotter is a man named Thomas Winter. Winter is his cousin. And there are various other networks of kinship and clientage amongst these plotters. But it's Catesby who I think is the brains behind the operation. It's then his cousin, Thomas Winter, whom Catesby uses to recruit other plotters. And Fawkes, Guy Fawkes, is directly recruited, really, because obviously the plotters realise, I mean, they, they know how to handle a sword, they know how to fire a gun, but none of them has got professional military experience. They need a soldier. They need somebody who can actually, you know, lead a revolt or lead a revolution. And Fawkes is that man. The other extraordinary thing about Fawkes, which I've only just realised, actually, even though I've been you know, reading about and researching the gunpowder plot for years, Fawkes, actually, as well as having experience as a professional soldier, he also had experience as a mining engineer. He knew how to tunnel. He knew how to place explosives in tunnels as a result of his fighting in the Spanish Netherlands. So that, combined with his passionate, ardent Catholicism, really commends him to the gunpowder plotters. But there's one other really fascinating detail, and a very unexpected detail about Guy Fawkes' background, and that is that he must have been brought up as a Protestant. So his family in York were Protestants, and quite strong Protestants at that. So Guy Fawkes, as far as I can determine, Guy Fawkes was a convert to the Catholic cause. And that really places him in a different kind of category because you often find it's religious converts who are amongst the most committed, amongst the most passionate. And of course, we know from our own times, um, the most radical and most willing to prove themselves to do something extraordinary or to do something outrageous. And so Fawkes, I think, is, falls into that category. Now, here's a, a question which is popular on, among the internet search queries, and that is, why did the conspirators choose Parliament as their target? Well, choosing Parliament at one level is an obvious target if you want to destroy the government, uh, because Parliament is split into two parts in the early 17th century, as it is now, the House of Commons and the House of Lords. And so if you can destroy Parliament, you can destroy essentially everybody who is governing at one fell swoop. And the, the House of Lords, underneath which the gunpowder is placed, and the House of Commons are in adjacent parts of the old Palace of Westminster. So judging by the amount of gunpowder they stockpiled, um, there's no doubt that the, the commons, as well as the lords, would have been taken out in that conflagration. 
But in a sense, the the plotters, they choose their timing really effectively. So it's not just parliaments they're striking out at. It's the state opening of parliament. And this, of course, is, is what still happens incredibly to this day. Um, the monarch processes from one of the royal palaces to the Palace of Westminster and sits on a throne in the House of Lords and gives a speech. And if there is an heir to the throne, that heir to the throne will sit next to the monarch and listen to that speech. And until very recently, we were seeing our Prince Charles um, sitting on a small throne um, next to Queen Elizabeth II whilst the Queen delivered her Queen speech. Now, of course, that's going to be a, a King's speech and it will be the next Prince of Wales who will be entitled to sit in Parliament. And so with that state opening, essentially the King, the heir and possibly the spare, uh, the House of Commons, the House of Lords, the entire court and all of the judges would have been crammed into one little space at one time. It's something that never otherwise happens in the kind of English constitutional calendar. So they were going to take out a lot of very important people in one fell swoop if, if you know, if this plot was realised. Yes, if the plot was realised, they would not only have destroyed the monarchy, they would have destroyed the entire government and the legal system as well, because all of the judges would have been there too. So if it had worked, it would have removed essentially the entire tier of British government, in England at least, at one go. It's the only moment in the entire year, or several years actually, because Parliament isn't opened every year, of course. They only have the opportunity like this once every three, four, five years, maybe. So they've got one day in which they might do this. And that day was 4th or 5th November, 1605. Originally, Parliament had been intended to meet in February of 1605, but plague hit London. So Parliament was, um, you know, was delayed in being summoned. And that must have been a very anxious time for the plotters because they'd intended to launch this plot early in 1605. And it seems they'd already acquired the gunpowder. So that gunpowder was being stored somewhere, either in Lambeth or possibly some of it within the Palace of Westminster itself for months. And that brought its own risks, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Because gunpowder is, is volatile stuff in the early 17th century. Uh, well, it's, it's doubly dangerous, actually, because it's volatile and might explode or it might decay because early 17th century gunpowder can go off quite quickly and just become um, unlightable, unignitable, if that's a word. So, yeah, the, um, the plotters must really have been worried by that delay. But nevertheless, um, they managed to get that gunpowder uh, under the House of Lords and uh, Guy Fawkes is sent down to the uh, cellars beneath the palace with a long burning fuse. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And there's no doubt that anti-Catholicism gets worse as a result of the gunpowder plot. So a lot of these celebrations take on a, a really dangerously and unpleasantly sort of sectarian element. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. 
It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Listen closely. As a master painter carefully brushes Benjamin Moore Regal Select down the seam of the wall. It's like poetry in motion. Benjamin Moore, see the love. Okay, so can you tell us what happens next? What what happens from the moment the Guy Fawkes gets down there to the moment the plot is foiled? And can you also explain to us how was the plot foiled? Again, the final hours of this plot and how the plot was foiled. We're getting contrary stories here. Guy Fawkes, of course, uh, after he was arrested... Um, was interrogated. He was interrogated for a long time. He was almost certainly tortured. He holds out for a long time, actually, partly because he thinks that the plot is carrying on in the Midlands. So in fact, he's protecting his fellows. He thinks that even though Parliament has not been blown up, there's still a possibility that the plot will succeed. So he tells his story very slowly and only in parts. And we suspect that Guy Fawkes doesn't tell the whole story, Otherwise, the story of how it's discovered relies on the testimony of uh, another one of the principal plotters, Thomas Winter. And his confession, his story is extraordinary and, and very lengthy. But Winter is telling the story from a different perspective from Guy Fawkes. So Winter isn't there in the cellar underneath the House of Lords. What seems to have happened is that there is a security sweep, as it were, in the palace, as you might imagine, and Fawkes is noticed, actually, but actually not, not questioned, um, not arrested, because he comes up with a cover story. And the gunpowder is concealed. And so Fawkes thinks he's got away with it. And then suspicions are triggered and a second sweep. Actually, somebody actually starts to think, to really start to search this cellar. And that's when they find the gunpowder. Now, there's something interesting about this story. There's something, there seems something almost providential about the discovery of Fawkes and the providential about the discovery of this gunpowder. And it has been pointed out by a number of people that this story is just a bit too, a bit too neat in some ways. And I think the most, the most radical explanations are that the, the security services actually knew about this plot at an earlier stage and that they were allowing this plot to play out to see who would reveal themselves. So in a sense, the king had been tipped off. There would Parliament would never have opened. Guy Fawkes thought that there was a possibility of blowing up Parliament, but that would never have happened. I, I find that rather far-fetched. That was actually the case in a number of the Elizabethan plots, actually, where 
Francis Walsingham, he genuinely did know about some of these plots long before they actually ignited, and he was letting them play out to see what would happen. This seems very late in the day for me. I mean, actually getting to the point of stockpiling 36 barrels of gunpowder underneath the Palace of Westminster, that strikes me that the plot had gone a a very, very long way. And I think an alternative explanation is, is probably a better one, which is that Robert Catesby simply doesn't care who is caught in the crossfire of this. A number of Catholic peers would have been attending Parliament. Catesby doesn't care about that. He's not bothered about that. He thinks that they're they're compromised, they're implicated with the government. They might be Catholic, but they're not real Catholics if they're that close to the government. So let them burn, basically. Let them be blown up. That said, Catesby is, is a real radical. Not all of the plotters are quite as radical as that. And a message or a tip-off seems to have been got to uh, a couple of Catholic peers. Lord Mount Eagle is one, and the Earl of Northumberland is another one. And that's significant because one of the plotters was a Percy. The Percys are the Earls of Northumberland. And this Thomas Percy is like a fourth cousin to the Earl of Northumberland. But it's possible that the Thomas Percy, the conspirator, gets a message to the Earl of Northumberland, uh, saying, you might want to stay away from Parliament. Um, And one or two other Catholic peers, as I said, seem to have been tipped off. And it seems that one of those Catholic noblemen may have tipped off the king. And it's possible that that's the cause of the second security sweep, uh, which is when Guy Fawkes is actually discovered. Okay, that takes us on nicely to the next question, which was submitted by somebody called MHFQ. And that is, did any conspirators successfully escape justice? Now, just going to rewind from that a little bit, just to ask, how quickly did the authorities track down all the conspirators and and what punishments were meted out to them? Okay, so there are several questions uh, bound up together there. So Guy Fawkes is arrested on site. The other conspirators are picked up within three or four days. I suppose the the principal conspirators, Catesby and Winter, are tracked down. So uh, the, the, uh, the sheriffs and the Lord's Lieutenant of England, particularly of the Midlands, where these men are from, they are alerted. And a lot of search parties, posses are sent out. And um, ultimately, Winter and Catesby and a handful of the kind of core conspirators are tracked down at, at a, a house in at Holbeach in Staffordshire, which is where they make their final stand. Catesby is, I think he's, he wants to go down fighting. He's keen not to be captured. Um, and so when the house is surrounded and surrounded by armed men, they, they've got very few firearms. They actually advance for a, for a kind of, I mean, it's like something out of a Western film, like a last stand. You know, they draw their swords and march into the hail of fire. And Catesby is is hit by gunfire, as is Thomas Percy. Catesby is fatally wounded and dies. He's he's dragged back inside the house and and dies. Catholic historiography tells us that he dies with a, uh, uh, you know, uh, clutching clutching an image of of the Virgin Mary or clutching a a crucifix, you know, clutching an image of of, um, his Catholic faith. So Catesby, I suppose... You know, he's killed in that crossfire heat, but he escapes justice in, in, in that way. Thomas Winter is injured. He's already been injured, actually, in an accidental explosion of gunpowder 
that the conspirators have with them. He's then further injured um, during the uh, during the skirmish with the sheriff's men in Staffordshire, but he survives and he's taken down to London for months of questioning. And that's how we know so much about the gunpowder plot. But Winter and Guy Fawkes and a, a number of the other principal plotters um, face a, a traitor's death. They're taken to Westminster itself. So they are hanged, drawn and quartered at Westminster, sort of within sight of the building that they uh, were attempting to explode. And if any of you know, uh, any of your listeners know what hanging, drawing and quartering means, I mean, it's it's a traitor's death and it's a very lengthy and horrific death that's intended to inflict a lot of pain in that you are essentially eviscerated and cut up having been partially hanged and then you know, your entrails are burned in front of you and finally your body is dismembered and quarters of your body are sent to various places to be nailed up to, um, to act as a kind of um, uh, a warning, a, a terrifying warning to future conspirators. So that's the fate of Guy Fawkes. Of course, Guy Fawkes was not burned. I mean, one of the interesting things about English, you know, bonfire night ce- uh, celebrations, as it were, is that we burn a guy um, Guy Fawkes was was not burned. He was um, he was hanged. Some of the other more distant conspirators uh, probably do escape justice. Actually, so people really on the fringes of the plot, or rather people whom the government assumes are on the fringes of the plot, particularly some of the noblemen, um, do escape justice. But we simply don't know really the extent of their complicity. The government thinks in very hierarchical terms. They simply don't believe that Catesby can be the leader. They think, well, that, this, must go, this must go further. This must go deeper. There must have been members of the House of Lords. There must, have been, there must have been a nobleman somewhere behind this. And a lot of suspicion falls on the Earl of Northumberland. But, I mean, Northumberland is disgraced and imprisoned, but he gets away with it. He gets away with it with his life. So there are people who sort of evade justice, but... Um, you know, a dozen or so of the of the principal plotters um, are executed in various different locations and various different horrible ways. So what did the general public make of all this? Here's a question from um, SBH 2004, and they ask, you know, how were the perpetrators viewed by the general public at the time? And was their capture kind of re- received rapturously by the, by the wider population? Yes, I think the capture of the gunpowder plotters was received rapturously wider by the wider population, apart from the pretty small minority of the population who would have been Catholic at this point. So this was a, a sensational story that was broadcast and propagandised within an inch of its life, really. So almost immediately, the government, with remarkable efficiency, actually, swings into action. So as soon as the gunpowder plot is that as soon as its discovery is announced, Londoners are basically told to light bonfires and ring church bells in celebration. Now, they knew how to do that because since Elizabeth I's reign, London city wards and parishes, and in fact, parishes all over England, have been doing that. They've been setting off fireworks and lighting bonfires and holding feasts and ringing their church bells and having services to celebrate Queen Elizabeth I's longevity, essentially, to celebrate her the, the day of her accession, um, 17th of November. So they knew how to do that. But this is something different, I think. And 
you know, the, the, the celebrations on the 5th of November become fixed at a very early point and they continue to be celebrated in 1606 and 1607 and 1608 and so on. And it becomes a, a permanent fixed point uh, in, the, in the kind of English calendar, in some way actually replacing medieval saints' days as a day in which you can light a fire, have a feast, uh, set off fireworks if you can get your hands on them and, and celebrate. And what those people are celebrating is, of course, the fact that the king hadn't been assassinated and, and England had not fallen into a, uh, a bloody civil war based on religion. Actually, that is something to celebrate. But there's a far less positive side of this. And of course, anti-Catholicism is a very unpleasant and a visceral part of English society following the Reformation. And there's no doubt that anti-Catholicism gets worse as a result of the gunpowder plot. So a lot of these celebrations take on a a really dangerously and unpleasantly sort of sectarian element. I mean, sectarian in a sense that most English people these days would find very difficult to understand. I think if you've been brought up in uh, Northern Ireland, particularly Northern Ireland during the Troubles, you'd be very well aware of what sectarian conflict and what anti-Catholicism or anti-Protestantism, for that matter, looks like. So in the modern United Kingdom, we do still have evidence of what that kind of sectarian conflict can look like. And I think that 17th century England looks like that, partly as a result of the gunpowder plot. And it's clear that the gunpowder plot is remembered throughout the 17th century, but it's then re-invoked and the stories are told again and the propaganda is re-released and the stories are embellished for very particular reasons around the time of the Popish plot, for instance, in the 1670s. Now, the gunpowder plot is a real plot. Titus Oates and the Popish plot is a, is a totally fabricated plot. I mean, it's, there's no reality in the Popish plot at all, as far as I can see. But once again, those old stories of gunpowder, treason and plot come out. And it's like, once again, you kind of round up the usual suspects and you, it, it kind of provides a language of anti-Catholicism, a language in belief that, yeah, Catholics are, are disloyal. They're just waiting for their moment to strike against the state. They did it in 1605. They're going to do it. They did try to do it in the 1670s. They're going to try and keep on doing it. And, and we see resonances, political resonances, incredibly, of the gunpowder plot at various points in the 18th century and, and right through to the 19th century, actually. And finally, John, as, as I mentioned at the beginning of our chat, the, the gunpowder plot is such a celebrated, stroke notorious event in British history. More than 400 years after its failure, why does it still resonate so much today? Thinking about why the gunpowder plot still resonates today is a very interesting question. I think this is changing, actually. But one of the reasons that it resonates is that this is one of the most extraordinary moments in English or British political history. It's it's one of the moments... I mean, if you think about it, if the gunpowder plot had succeeded... Uh, we would have had, you know, a king and the royal family and the entire parliament blown up. I mean, that is an utterly astonishing thing that very nearly happened, depending on how you read the gunpowder plot. So in terms of a dramatic story coming out of the early modern past, I mean, it's as dramatic, I think, as the story of the execution of King Charles I on 30th of January, 1649. You know, it's as extraordinary as 
you know, the stories of uh, around uh, the, the Blitz on London in 1940-41 and when the Palace of Westminster was hit by incendiary bombs and, and nearly burned down. And it's so located with a place, you know, this iconic palace that, of course, is still our Palace of Westminster, still our Houses of Parliament today. It's a different building today from the building that it was in the 17th century. But we can still go to that place and we can, we can still get a sense of that. So I think that's one of the reasons that it resonates was Dr John Cooper, reader in early modern history at the University of York. For plenty more on the gunpowder plot, head to historyextra.com. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.